0: There's a case study from the fasting clinic in Santa Rosa, and they've published the original case and then a, a follow-up a few years later of a, a patient, I believe it was a woman, maybe early middle age, who had a follicular non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And these are tumors that are known to wax and wane for reasons unknown to human beings. But anyway, this patient went to this clinic, and I believe she fasted for something like 14 to 21 days on water. <laughs> And her lymphoma regressed and quieted. And I don't recall if she's, you know, free of any signs of this lymphoma. But when they published a follow-up a few years later, she was still doing very, very well. You have found your way to the Lamont Gordon Podcast, where docs talk shop. Happy eavesdropping. <laughs> I'm Dr. Dawn Lamont. I treat cancer patients. I'm Dr. Deborah Gordon. I work with aging patients. We've been in practice a long time. (laughs) A very long time. We learn so much talking to each other.
1: We do. What if we let people listen in? In this episode, Dr. Lamont explores fasting, some of the strategies, patterns, and benefits she's seen in her own life and with her patients. One of the most surprising things was her take on dry fasting, refraining not only from food, but also from water. Let's listen. One of the first things I learned from you that was really beneficial and it's something I've carried with me as an action item with my patients is the observation that you shared with me, studies I believe, that women who have some degree of metabolic syndrome and are diagnosed and treated for breast cancer have less recurrence if they adjust their diet if they, I believe it was a prolonged overnight fast. Or, ooh, so, ooh. Uh, it was something that reduced their metabolic dysfunction, their belly fat, and their insulin resistance. This question has come up again for me recently with some other patients with cancers. So I just want an update from you on what would be all the ways that you as an oncologist or myself as a physician with patients who are seeing the oncologist, how does fasting fit in now in your worldview of approaching cancer prevention and treatment? Fasting
0: is the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> fasting is a fantastic tool for a lot of people to improve their metabolic health, decrease their risk of getting cancer, improve their chances of surviving if they do get cancer, improve the treatment efficacy and decrease side effects for certain types of treatment, like certain chemotherapy drugs. So fasting is a practice that most people can benefit from, whether they have cancer or not, uh, and whether they're worried about cancer. Everybody's worried about cancer. I think you're right. And just to broaden the perspective, it's not just about cancer, it's about general health. And other diseases are affected by fasting practices and one's metabolic health. In general, would you
1: say that it reduces risk of any kind of cancer from basal cell to colon
0: cancer? That's a great question. Some cancers are not so related to nutritional or metabolic problems. Some cancers are directly related to infection. For instance, in Africa, in Africa, Epstein-Barr virus and malaria combine to create a cancer called Burkitt's lymphoma in children. Now, these children don't necessarily have diabetes type 2 or overweight or anything like that, but the combination of those two pathogens sets them up for development of this particular very deadly malignancy. And changing their diet won't help. They need to be treated for the malignancy itself. Most people are concerned about in the United States these days are the common cancers of older adulthood. So we're talking about breast cancer, colon cancer. certain types of lung cancer especially in non-smokers, pancreatic cancer, possibly kidney cancer, myeloma, endometrial cancer. The list is longer than that, but those are some of the cancers that we know are associated with overnutrition, meaning too many calories over a long period of time that can be somewhat addressed with changes in that overnutrition and,
1: and prostate cancer would be in that list as well, wouldn't prostate
0: it? Prostate cancer is probably in that list for most people, uh-huh. although there certainly are different flavors of prostate cancer as well. We're still sorting that out. And prostate cancer may behave differently depending on which stage you're at. One of the things that I want to talk about is what is fasting. Yes. When I talk about fasting with my patients, I mean no calories. And there are different definitions of fasting. Some people say, well, I want to do a fat fast and they'll eat calories from lipids, fats only. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about using water and acaloric, non-caloric liquids to maintain hydration. And sometimes I will ask my patients to use various salts, sodium, magnesium, potassium, to keep things in balance during a prolonged fast. I want to make it clear what we're talking about when I'm talking about fasting. I'm talking about no calories. No
1: calories, but allowing liquids to... non-caloric liquids...
0: And right, li- right. libido as as the patients Water, would want. If, you know, some patients are addicted to coffee. I would be in that class. <laughs> they can have tea, coffee, um, other types of herbal teas that have no calories uh-huh. uh, would be allowed. And basically water and sometimes some salt in that water.
1: So speaking to the people who are not yet your patients, who don't ever want to be your cancer patients, what kind of non-caloric liquid fasting routine are we talking about? A day at a time, uh, three days at a time, a month, a year? uh.
0: That's a great question. We don't know the answer to that, but we have some hints about what different types and lengths of fasts might do. So people have heard of intermittent fasting, which these days means restricting food to a certain period of time during the day and abstaining from calories usually during an overnight period, prolonged 13 hours or more. There are also fasts of 24 hours or 36 hours or 72 hours, as long as you want to go. And they all do slightly different things. The longer you fast, the more you turn on new and differing ways of dealing with caloric absence, and all of them are beneficial for your body. So there's a kind of a cascading effect and a short overnight fast of, say, 13 hours, which is where we start to see the benefit. So less than 13 hours, you're not really going to see much metabolic benefit. I think people
1: sleep better if they're not eating right up to bedtime. But you're saying in terms of shifting their metabolism, there's not a particular benefit with just fasting for 11 or 12 hours.
0: Right. The benefits start to accrue at 13 hours. That's where we can really start to measure them. So there was an interesting study that was published in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association about five years ago. And it was an observational study of women who'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. And those who fasted 13 hours or more had a lower risk of recurrence over the three or so years of observation than did those who fasted for 12 hours or less. So that dividing line was right at 12 hours.
1: Huge difference. That's the study that you first told me about several years ago, and I just told people, stretch it to 13, just stretch it to 13. That was a risk of recurrence, but would you say that same principle probably applies
0: to prevention as well? I would. And one of the things that I have bad news for all of us, and that's that food, any food, even the most beautiful organic keto, uh, (laughs) green, anything is carcinogenic. (laughs) (laughs) So just stop eating. (laughs) Once in a while, we should stop eating. So the metabolism of food creates free radicals and reactive oxygen species, things that are toxic to our DNA and damage our DNA. Every time you damage your DNA and repair it, there's a chance of developing a cancer. The chance is really low. But there it is. So the more you eat, the higher your chances. And by the time we all get to 100, we've, our chances are pretty much almost 100% as well. So taking breaks from eating is the mechanism we think causes uh, prolonged life expectancy in animals. So laboratory studies show that the less you feed an animal and or the more you make it fast for longer periods, uh, say more than 24 hours, uh, the longer it's going to live. That's been known for almost a 100 years. The studies are so consistent in laboratory animals, all the way from earthworms, drosophila, which are fruit flies, even yeast, and up through vertebrates and mammals. So that's something that's very, very well known in the scientific world. And I think we can learn a lot from that. It's not been tested in humans and never will be formally, I don't suppose, because how would you do that ethically? But yes, fasting will have cancer preventive effects for most people. If you are worried about cancer and you're fully grown, so this is not for children, but people whose height and uh, adult weight have been attained, periodic fasting at least 13 hours overnight, and perhaps a longer fast of 24 hours once or twice a month, and perhaps an even longer fast of up to three days, two or three days, 48 to 72 hours once or twice a year, would probably be beneficial.
1: But we're talking about in cancer prevention, you're saying at its longest kind of a pretty safe and reasonable thing to suggest to a lot of people, you could do it for up to three days. And I've heard the first day is the worst, and after that tends to get a little easier for people. So
0: yes, the first day is the worst. People tend to have a lot of fluid shifts that first day. When you don't eat, your body tends to remove sodium. So for people who have high blood pressure, their blood pressure will often completely normalize. After 24 to 48 hours without food, if you're on blood pressure medication, you may want to stop them before you start your fast. Or at least check your blood pressure. At least check your blood pressure. And if it goes down too low, don't take your next dose if you're fasting. Of course, nobody would do any type of fast if they're on medications for blood pressure without checking with their physician or with a physician who is versed in the science and art of fasting. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of physicians are very afraid of fasting and will just have kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, don't do that. That's just a terrible idea. Well, it's not a terrible idea. The animal studies over 100 years are very consistent that it's a healthy uh, practice that you can't be healthy unless you partake of. In other words, most people will be healthier if they add fasting to their health routines. It's certainly been a part
1: and some of the big fasting proponents that we know through, you know, recent science and social media and things like that. Fasting has been a part of religious traditions of all sorts for Oh, yes. for yes. the traditional
0: fast, I think, in all those traditions is 40 days and 40 nights. I think that was Buddha. I think that was Moses. I think that was <laughs> Jesus. Um, you know, so 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know anybody who's fasted in the biblical sense, which is no food and no water for 40 days and 40 nights. But there are people who have been experimenting with something called dry fasting, which is no food and no water. This is not something I would recommend that anyone undertake unless they're under the supervision of a physician. And even then, one could question whether that's a wise thing to do. Um, but I'll tell you a secret. I've been experimenting with, I with, bet with, that was with dry be fasting myself. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And uh, I'll tell you that I found it to be much, much easier than water fast.
1: Seriously? Yes.
0: So the first 24 hours are much easier. And I think it's because of the fluid shifts. When you don't take in water, as well as food, your blood becomes a little bit more concentrated and the sodium level stays the same. When you take in water, you waste sodium. The sodium level goes down and you feel horrible. In marathon
1: athletic events, there have actually been deaths from replacing fluid loss by sweating with just plain water. So yeah. Right, right. Some of the marathoners
0: have taken in huge amounts of just plain water and and died. And died. So
1: your first day of a dry fast, you're saying is actually easier
0: than your first day of a water-only fast. Yes, yes, I prefer it. And I've only done 24 hours dry fasting. That's the maximum I've done. But I found it easier. I found it actually delightful. One of the things that I've noticed with a dry fast is a great improvement in my brain function. I found dry fasting to be a lot easier. Than water fasting. One of the symptoms that I have within the first 24 hours of water fasting is lightheadedness. Now I can mitigate that with some salt intake. I use something called good salt, which is a brand of electrolyte replacement. It comes as a white crystalline powder, looks just like salt, tastes like salt. It's got sodium, potassium, and magnesium in it. And I'll take a teaspoon of that or two a day. um, And that keeps the lightheadedness uh, away. But with the dry fasting, I don't have that. My brain function after a dry fast is so much better. And one of the main things that I notice is an uptick in dreaming. I'll have much more vivid dreams. I'll recall them. Seems like the dreams go on and on throughout the night. So that's something I've noticed. I've noticed that with rapamycin as well.
1: I could go in 10 different branches from everything you've said so far. But one of the things I was going to say is I'm a self-confessed fasting Wimp, you know, I'm very good at fasting overnight from anywhere from 12, which doesn't count, but from 13 to 16 hours, Mm -hmm. you know, depending Mm -hmm. on if I'm exercising or something that day. And the idea of totally not eating for 24, 48, 72 hours, how much am I evoking the same benefit by taking rapamycin or fisetin Mm -hmm.
0: yes yes i mean those are great questions and we're going to find out i think with uh, the research that's going on it would be wonderful if we can take a pill and keep eating and get the same benefits that would be fantastic
1: so on a personal level you're telling me all these different activities of your brain that it's sharper and that you dream more Mm -hmm. do you notice anything else on a physical level
0: no, not really. It takes a day or two to recover. You have to replace your glycogen, If unless you go straight into a ketogenic diet. I'm not on a ketogenic diet these days because I like to work out hard. But I do find that over time, my health seems to be better if I do this every now and then. By every now and then, in the last year, I've probably done a 24-hour dry fast, maybe two or three times. Mm-hmm. Over the last four or five years, I've done many, many water fasts. Usually they're 24, 48 72 hours. I did one seven day water fast that was much easier than I ever dreamed it would be. After, do you remember I
1: ran into you at the food store in the freezer aisle on your seventh day? And you said, Oh, I've been fasting. It's great. I said, Oh, fasting, how hard for you? Why did you come to the store? And you know what you said to me? You said, Actually, I never want to eat again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true that the hunger disappears after a few days. It can come in waves, but their waves last about 40 minutes. And then they dissipate. And you're not, I'm not thinking about food, interested in food. I'm going about my business. I was active during that time. and a- Exercising? Uh, no, I wasn't exercising formally, but I was active. I was up and about. And doing, I remember I, this was probably not too wise, but I took some kind of really smelly, fumy paint and painted the porch because I had so much energy. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let me give you my address. (laughs) And so when we think about it as cancer preventative, I'm sort of imagining that one of the benefits of this is an
0: enhanced cleaning up of dead and damaged cells. Yes. So there's likely a clearing out of senescent cells. One study looked at a small number of people who were undergoing a several-day dry fast, no water at all. And their kidney function improved, which is kind of anathema. We think, well, if you don't drink water, your kidney function is going to only get worse. But their kidney function improved. uh, Several other things improved. In animals, cardiac function, lung function, liver, brain, everything improves with fasting acutely. It improves mainly during the rebuilding phase. So, oh, and the immune system rejuvenate. So Walter Longo's has done some really interesting work showing that after a five-day fast or a fast mimicking diet, which he, he likes a lot, animals and people, when they start eating again, there's a nice bloom of the immune system. The stem cells are reactivated. All of the immune cells are refreshed and replenished with brand spanking new ones. And the animals and people seem to have a really nice improved immune system.
1: Do we know on a cellular metabolism kind of level, is this a little bit like taking metformin or something like that to fast and starve your cells a little bit so they do house cleaning within the cells?
0: So I think what you're getting at is the idea of autophagy. And mitophagy. Autophagy is eating yourself, literally. And mitophagy is uh, the process that mitochondria go through when they dissolve and reconstitute themselves. And yes, I think there are lots of studies that suggest that that's one of the main mechanisms. Are there other ways to get that job done, the autophagy? Exercise, to a certain extent, can do it, although I don't think the autophagy that you get that a normal person like me going to the gym a few times a week gets from exercise is going to match something that, say, a an ultramarathoner (laughs) is going to get running 100 miles or something like that. So that wouldn't be a realistic way for me to try to accomplish much autophagy. So fasting would be better for me. And then, of course, if we can get some pills that uh, get the job done, that would be what everybody's hoping for.
1: But the bottom line takeaway is that for cancer prevention, the studies will never be done on a sufficiently robust number size to adequately confirm this, but it's probably in our best interest for not only the health of our brains, but the health of our bodies and the option of preventing cancer to do a 24-hour, a 72-hour fast at some not-too-frequent cycle throughout your
0: year, your lifetime? I would say if people are looking for guidance, of course, they would want to discuss this with their physician. What I will often tell my patients, if they're in pretty good health, there's nothing seriously going on, maybe they have some high blood pressure issues and we will then manage their blood pressure prescription during the fast. But a 24-hour fast once or twice a month is a good thing to aim for. Uh, Of course, the 13-hour overnight fast, I think everyone should do that. Pretty
1: Uh, much every day, really. Every day, yes. Yes.
0: And uh, one of the worst things you can do for your health is to eat a late dinner. So there's a differential between people who eat dinner at 8 and people who finish their dinner by 6 p.m. in terms of cancer risk. And then people who eat at night, you know, and eat up until bedtime.
1: Or wake up in
0: the night to eat. And wake up in the night to eat. Or even just eat at 9 p.m. right before they go to bed. There's a differential in cancer risk. We can measure that eating at night and eating your dinner late is probably not a great idea. But back to this uh, suggested fasting schedule. So I will suggest that once or twice a month, a 24-hour fast, maybe a couple times a year, a longer fast, 48 hours, 72 hours. And every now and then, if there's some issue going on, maybe every few years, a a seven-day fast or a five to seven-day fast, a longer fast. There's a case study from The fasting clinic in Santa Rosa, they've published the original case and then a a follow-up a few years later of a a patient, I believe it was a woman, maybe early middle age, who had a follicular non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And these are tumors that are known to wax and wane for reasons unknown to human beings. But anyway, this patient went to this clinic and I believe she fasted for something like 14 to 21 days on water. (laughs) And her lymphoma regressed and quieted. And I don't recall if she's, you know, free of any signs of this lymphoma. But when they published a follow-up a few years later, she was still doing very, very well. Uh huh. That's an anecdote. It's not even a single subject study. Uh, There's no statistics that were applied to it or no back and forth, anything like that. So we can't really say it was a study. But it is an interesting starting place to start to look at how fasting can affect certain types of cancers and Mm.
1: My next real question is about fasting in chemotherapy, and I know even Walter Longo has
0: commented on this one too. Oh, Walter Longo has done so much research in this space, and I follow his research carefully. One of the studies that his group did, along with a wonderful oncologist named Tanya Dorf, had to do with patients on a chemotherapy regimen that included a drug from the platinum family. And there are several of those. There's carboplatin, oxaloplatin, cisplatin. And Patients who were on one of those drugs for uh, cancer had a very nice response to fasting in that the measures of immune system damage were less if those patients fasted for 24 hours before and 24 hours after their chemotherapy infusion, exactly those times. So that's a 48-hour fast altogether. They weren't eating, of course, during the infusion (laughs) itself. One of the things that that study looked at was also was 24 hours of fasting enough and was 72 hours better and it turned out that 48 hours was pretty much the sweet spot 24 mm. hours of fasting didn't really get anything done those patients who fasted for 24 hours looked pretty much the same in terms of dna damage in their blood and immune system compared to those who weren't fasting at all so that wasn't enough 72 hours those patients they actually on paper looked like they did a little bit worse overall than the patients who did 48 hours, although they did much better than the 24-hour group. So 48 hours was the sweet spot in that very nice study from about seven or eight years ago now.
1: What you told me originally, or what I've carried forth, that patients have less side effects from the chemotherapy.
0: Observational studies, uh, retrospective studies, show that patients will report fewer side effects, less nausea, less fatigue with fasting. And they do have some side effects. The side effects are minor from the fasting itself, and that's basically lightheadedness and a little bit of temporary weakness.
1: Which seems to come up as a theme here, that yes, yes. something to
0: watch out for when you fast. Yes, especially during that first day. Uh And if you are choosing to fast with Chemotherapy, you certainly want to get the permission of your oncologist, and hopefully your oncologist is familiar with these studies and is uh, supportive. More and more oncologists are. Even the University of California, San Francisco now has online a page about fasting with chemotherapy. Oh, that's great! I think it's becoming more and more accepted by oncologists who are keeping up with things, which is a hard thing to do in oncology. It is hard to keep up in doctors. any field. In it is, yeah. So be nice to your doctors, <laughs> <laughs> so but do it, enlighten them on this topic if you. Would. Wish to proceed with fasting and get their permission and buy-in. So that UCSF page is a great
1: resource to link right. to. It isn't right. just from this random doctor I heard on a podcast. Right. Well, here. this
0: random doctor did actually go give a couple of talks Except at UCSF you said on, that's on fasting, and, <laughs> and I believe so did Dr. Dorf. and so they've been exposed to it, and the word's getting out. So if you've had one cancer, your risk of having another cancer is higher than... Than the general than the population? general population. Uh-huh. And certain cancers correlate more with a second cancer than do others. So, for instance, Hodgkin's lymphoma, especially if it's treated with radiation, those patients can later be at risk for breast cancer if their chest was radiated for the Hodgkin's lymphoma. Certain types of breast cancer, lobular breast cancer, may be associated with an increased risk of lifetime breast cancer in the remaining breast or the other breast. L- more lobular breast other, cancer? Any kind of breast cancers, so Invasive lobular cancer is possibly associated with an increased risk of any type of breast cancer in the future. It's just a marker for susceptibility to breast cancer. And then there are certain genetic predispositions. We think that all of these things can be at least partially addressed by keeping the metabolism in good shape. And fasting is certainly one tool to do that. And so I would say to someone who's had cancer, once that's in the background and you've finished your treatment and your health has returned, you want to go and look at the prevention side of things. And I would say that if your doctor agrees, then once or twice a month, 24-hour fast, slightly longer fast, once or twice a year, and occasionally a very long fast, five to seven days uh, every few years, uh, might be something you'd want to look into if you and your doctor decide it's safe for you.
1: Mm-hmm. We're experimenting. You're experimenting with both fisetin and rapamycin, and we know that the ways in which they benefit us is by being a fasting mimicking substitute as a, not a diet itself, but yeah. a, a yes. just an intervention that has that benefit. Do you recommend, do you use with your patients at all fisetin or rapamycin in the treatment or secondary prevention of cancer?
0: Yes. I have patients who are using rapamycin in hopes of delaying aging, and aging is... You know a proximal cause of cancer, so in that sense, yes, say that again, right Aging is a proximal cause of cancer and dementia
1: we'll and just dementia sort of throw that and in death there. <laughs> But what we want to do is be like the salmon from the ocean who live a fantastic life, swim upstream with full vigor, have a great night on the town,
0: and die in good health. I think they have sex once in their life, and that's the night,
1: right? (laughs) I think they do it more than that, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, But we want to have a really good life up until the time we die. And aging in general, for most people, puts them at risk for dementia and Cancers. Cancer. So you're talking to these
0: patients, and they are at risk for a recurrence. And Yes, and patients who've had several cancers. They are at high risk of having another one and improving their health span and possibly their lifespan. I mean, rapamycin is associated with the lifespan, and so is fasting. Mm-hmm. Fasting is associated with improvement in lifespan. Those are important things to understand and to implement when you can safely. Fasting For a lot of people, for instance, you may actually decrease quality of life. In that sense, it might not be worth it if it doesn't increase your health span. In other words, if you're feeling crappy because you're fasting, that might not be a way you want to approach aging damage. I'm really looking forward to the research that sorts all of this out. And yes, I think any of us would want a pill as opposed to doing the hard work of fasting. There is probably a propensity to have fasting be easy or hard for certain people, I'm not positive about that. I think that it may not be true. And perhaps that's just a way for people to say, well, it's harder for me than you. So you do it. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know. Uh, no, Maybe you don't. can call me a wimp. Just do it. Just call me a wimp. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really think it may be harder for you and for other people. But I do recall that it was harder for me at the beginning. Yes. And I got better at it. I should say my enzymes seem to have gotten a little better. And there are times where I will start a fast and just abort it because it's not going well. It's too hard. Something's wrong and I'll just let it go.
1: I think it's so important to pay attention to your body. Yes, I want to go on a big long hike, run, swim, whatever yeah, today. Exactly. No, today's not a good day. Yeah. Back out of the pool. Yeah, I think that's great. So my mind is swimming. Do you have several ways you could sort of sum this up and a few good takeaways for people to walk home with? Yes. For prevention
0: of cancer or after recovery from cancer, it's likely a good practice to incorporate fasting with your physician's permission into your life. And 13 hours overnight, I think is reasonable and safe for just about anyone. Of course, check with your physician to make sure. But 13 hours overnight is probably how we were built to live in terms of fasting. And that means no calories, no after supper snack. Finishing supper early is probably safer in terms of health than finishing supper at eight o'clock or later. Fasting 24 hours a couple of times a month may be a good idea for basically healthy people, as is fasting 48 to 72 hours a couple times a year for healthy people. And consider a longer fast, especially if you're having some nagging health problems that you think might be improved by fasting. Obesity, uh, hypertension, possibly coronary artery disease. Again, check with your doctor. These are some things that may benefit from periodic fasting and longer fasts. Keep an open mind about this and follow the the research. The animal studies are very, very clear. Fewer calories, better in terms of longevity. We didn't talk about this, but actually there are some animal studies that show that in cancer, you can turn some cancers that are absolutely incurable into curable cancers with treatment if you add fasting to that treatment. Is it a cancer that's also seen in humans? I believe it was lung cancer in these animals, but I'm not positive.
1: Mm-hmm. Some of those are... Really doable for anybody. Even I can do a 24 hour water only fast, but the 13 hour overnight
0: fast is really easy if you set your mind to it. And And another thing, if you enter a fast after a few days of being on a ketogenic diet, a ketogenic diet that uses fat for energy instead of carbohydrate or protein metabolism, and you can get into ketosis by eating mainly fats and almost no carbohydrates and very little protein or you can get into ketosis by burning your own fat because you haven't eaten for a few days. (laughs) The fasting is basically the ketogenic diet on steroids. To maintain muscle mass during a fast, you don't have to worry about it if it's 24 hours, but if it's more than 24 hours, you do need to worry about losing lean muscle mass. If you go into ketosis several days before you start your fast, that process of lean muscle loss seems to be abrogated. So I do a ketogenic diet for two or three days before I go into a long fast and then finish up that fast with another day or two of ketogenic diet to preserve my muscle mass. And I will do some light weight training, especially with my thighs. The quads seem to be particularly susceptible to atrophy in older people and people who are not getting enough calories. So that may prevent that process as well.
1: So if I want to go on a fasting program and be really, really brave and do it for three days. But I don't want to lose any muscle because I'm training and I don't want to lose muscle anyway. If I get myself on a good ketogenic diet for three days beforehand, I'm less likely to lose muscle mass when I then fast for three days. You have been listening to the Lamont
0: Gordon Podcast, where docs talk shop. For podcast transcripts, episode notes and links, and more, please visit the podcast website at... DocsTalkShop.com. Happy eavesdropping. Everything presented in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is established or implied. If you have a health or a medical concern, see a qualified professional promptly. We make no warranty as to the accuracy, adequacy, validity,
1: reliability, or completeness of the information presented in this podcast or found
0: on the podcast website. We accept no liability for loss or damage of any kind, resulting from your use of the podcast or the information presented therein. Your use of any information presented in this podcast is at your own risk.
1: Again, if you have any medical concerns, see your own provider
0: or another qualified health professional promptly. You must not take any action based on information in this podcast without first consulting your own qualified medical professional.